There was a woman who looked outside of her front window and she saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. Her family did not get along well with the next door neighbor and so this was going to be an absolute disaster. She grabbed a broom, she pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. She panicked. She didn't know what else to do. And so she grabbed the rabbit, she took it inside, she gave it a bath, she blow dried its fur to its original fluffiness and then combed it until the rabbit was looking good. She snuck back into the next door neighbor's yard and she propped the rabbit up against its cage and scurried back inside. About an hour later, she heard screams coming from next door and curiously opened the door and leaned out and said, what's going on over there? The neighbor cried out, our rabbit, our rabbit. He died two weeks ago and we buried him. But now he's back. People know that dead rabbits tend to stay dead. People in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits tend to stay dead. And people in the ancient world knew that dead people stay dead. And that is why one scholar writes that there were many messianic movements in the first century. And in every single one of those stories, the would-be Messiah got crucified by the Romans, just as Jesus did. He goes on to write, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Dead people stayed dead. No resurrected messiahs except for one. The resurrection of Jesus is the most unique element of the Christian gospel, and it is world-changing in its effect. A couple of weeks ago, here at the church, we did an experiment in some of our adult Sunday school classes where people were asked, down to, uh, write, uh, asked to write down their definition of the gospel in a succinct form. Many of you were maybe part of that experiment. And it was interesting to see and to learn about what people said. The vast majority of folks who went through this exercise had many great elements of the gospel that they captured. But many people had the propensity to leave out two elements of the gospel. Those two elements, you might imagine, judgment and Resurrection. And that's really interesting. The one thing that we should fear the most, judgment. And the one thing that changed the world completely, resurrection. The one thing that nobody likes to talk about 
judgment. And the one thing we absolutely need to talk about, resurrection. That's really interesting because after Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples went out to the world to explain to them what had happened, it was those two things they seemed to talk about the most. Judgment and resurrection. Many of us might be surprised to know that as the apostles who had seen the risen Lord went out to tell people about God's love that was displayed through his son Jesus, they proclaimed resurrection more than anything else. Most of us would assume that they would go out giving a message of Jesus' death. And most of us actually would say, if we were to summarize the gospel as succinctly as we could, we would say something like, Jesus died for our sins. But again and again and again, from town to town, place to place, people to people, the disciples went out, not with the message that Jesus died, but with the message that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's illustrated all throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts. I wanna ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of Acts, if you can keep up. This morning, you guys are going to get a lot of Bible from a lot of different places. But this message of judgment and resurrection, and specifically resurrection, is displayed in almost every single chapter of the book of Acts. I'm just going to illustrate it with a handful of them for you. Starting at the beginning in Acts chapter 2. Jesus rose from the dead. His disciples have seen him. There had been over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. The Holy Spirit is now being poured out on people and they're witnessing. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 stands up to preach and his message has a number of elements including a core element of resurrection. He says in verse 224 this, God raised him. <laughs> Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Flipping forward a couple pages to Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead... By him, this man was standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the build, rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 33, it gives a description of what the apostles were doing. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. To what? They were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. If you move forward just another chapter to Acts chapter 5, verse 39 and on, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then he gives the reason why. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are the witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Why must we obey God? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. <laughs> Acts chapter 17, all the way as the book moves towards its conclusion. Pete Paul now is preaching 
And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the list goes on. In nearly every chapter in the book of Acts, there is at least mention of, if not explicit, explicit teaching to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this was the proclamation as the church went out. And the significance of this is important because the resurrection has many implications for us and for the world as a whole. And today we want to talk about three of them. One, which we often remember. And two, that we don't often think about. And they are this. The first implication of the resurrection is that because Jesus rose from the dead, you will too. That's one that we often think about. The second implication is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the one who will judge. And the third implication is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the ruler of the world. And so let's take them one at a time, starting with because Jesus rose, we will too. Throughout the Bible, the idea of rising from the dead is taught for all humanity. This is far from the notion that you hear from many modern-day atheists that when you die, your existence just ceases. Some would have you believe that. But throughout the Bible, a resurrection of the dead is a common teaching. Jesus himself taught about this in a number of places, including in John chapter 11, when he is speaking with Martha regarding the death of her brother Lazarus. Martha, a good Jewish woman, also recognizes this coming resurrection, but she doesn't expect what Jesus is going to say. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul picks up the idea of the resurrection of the dead and he relates it to Jesus' resurrection as well. And the whole chapter, you see, is this back and forth about people rising from the dead at the end of all things and Jesus' resurrection being the guarantee of that happening. And he says this in chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Because Jesus rose, we will too. And for Jesus to be called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep means two things. Number one, if he is the first fruits in his resurrection, that implies that there will be more fruits. <laughs> if there's a first, there's a second and a third and on down the line. But beyond that, for Jesus to be referred to as the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep upon his resurrection points to the fact that when he rose, he had a new kind of human life with a perfect body that would no longer be subject to weakness, no longer be subject to aging, no longer be subject to death. A body that would live eternally. Paul says that all we be made alive in this way just as Christ was made alive. Now there's a lot of implications there to unpack, but let's just focus on the plain implication, which is this. Jesus's resurrection and being the first fruits of the perfect body also means that you will receive a perfect resurrection body as well. Now, if you don't think about that too deeply or if you just kind of sit back and look at that from a distance, that might not have so great an impact on you. But the older you get, the more the idea of a resurrection body becomes a longing for you. This means that the constant pain in my shoulder will be gone. This means for those of you who are suffering with chronic illness or chronic pain, and there are many to varying degrees, it means that you will finally feel the way that you're supposed to. This means for those of you who have been battling disease, that you will never have to battle disease again. And the list goes on. You will have a perfect resurrection body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Because Jesus rose, we will too. The second implication is that Jesus rose as the judge. When the apostles preached about the resurrection of Jesus, they connected it to our resurrection of the dead. And throughout the Bible, our resurrection of the dead is connected to the last day or judgment day. People aren't raised from the dead to immediately go to their eternal destiny in heaven or in hell. The resurrection of the dead is directly connected to the day of judgment. People rise from the dead to stand before a judge 
who then will determine their eternal destiny. This was the message of Paul in Acts chapter 17 to a bunch of people who didn't know really anything about God in Athens. This is what he said in verse 30. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So there's a connection in Paul's mind as he preaches the good news of Jesus. There's a connection between the resurrection of the dead for all people and the day of judgment and the resurrection of Jesus and what kind of assurances that gives for that day. And he gives at least three assurances just right here by way of observation. The resurrection of Jesus gives us an assurance that judgment will happen. (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. We rise to a day of judgment. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus gives an assurance that God has appointed Jesus to be the judge. That's why he says, a man whom he has appointed will be the judge of the world. That's Jesus. And thirdly, the resurrection gives us an assurance that Jesus is righteous. He's judging in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And if Jesus is righteous, the implication is that his judgments will be righteous. Jesus rose as the righteous judge. He himself teaches this about his role. All the way back in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And likewise, in verse 25 of chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all those who hear will live. And for the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So resurrection from the dead leads to a moment of judgment which then goes to life or eternal judgment. Jesus has the authority to be that judge and that is a sobering reality. And depending upon where you stand, that might be a cause for great fear. Or it might be a cause for some really good news. And here is the good news. The good news that we talked about last week and the week before 
And if you haven't had a chance, if you missed those, you haven't had a chance to listen to them, I want to encourage you to go back because all of these messages are functioning in conjunction with each other in this series. The good news is that we talked about is that justice will be served. And that's good. God in his holiness, his purity, his perfection, God in his righteousness, which is the expression of that holiness to the beings around him. Those characteristics are inextricably linked from each other, as is God's justice. His upholding all things in their right place. This justice will be satisfied completely. And friends, you want justice to be served. You do. You want things to be in their right place. You do not want the wicked to win. We all want true, godly, perfect justice. And it's good news here because in Jesus, as we talked about last week, for those who put their faith in him, not only will justice be served, but justice has already been served. Jesus' work on the cross when he came to die for us removes guilt from us and satisfies the penalty of God's wrath against us for everybody who puts their faith in him. This is not applied or accomplished for those that do not put their faith in him. It is reserved, as he says, for those who trust him, who follow him, who put their faith in him. He is the judge who seeks justice but he is also the judge who satisfies that justice. So the risen Christ, Jesus, forgives. He offers new life. Under his reign as God's new king, justice has been served. Romans 4.25 tells us this, that Jesus' resurrection is for the sake of justice. It says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised up for our justification. The judge is also the justifier for those who believe. Malcolm Muggeridge, as he was nearing the end of his life, wrote about how he processed this claim of the resurrection and justice and new life and what it meant for him as he approached death in this life. And he does so in poetic fashion. He writes this. He says, plenty of great teachers, mystics, martyrs, and saints have spoken words full of grace and truth. In the case of Jesus alone, however, the belief has persisted that when he came into the world, God designed to take on the likeness of a man. For myself, as I approach my end, I find Jesus' outrageous claim ever more captivating and meaningful. Quite often waking up in the night, as the old do, I feel myself to be half out of my body, hovering between life and death, with eternity rising in the distance. I see my ancient carcass, prone between the sheets, stained and worn out like a scrap of paper dropped in the gutter. And hovering over it, myself, like a butterfly, released from its chrysalis stage and ready to fly away. 
Are caterpillars told of their impending resurrection? How in dying they will be transformed from poor earth crawlers into creatures of the air with exquisitely colorful painted wings? If told, do they believe it? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their heads. No, it can't be. It's a fantasy. Yet, in the limbo between living and dying, as the night clocks tick remorselessly on, I hear those words. I am the resurrection and the life. And I feel myself being carried along on a great tide of joy and peace. That is why Peter writes, blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? We're born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third implication of the resurrection is that Jesus rose as God's appointed ruler. Again, back in Acts, Peter describes this to those who witnessed the day of Pentecost. And he says this in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, King David, that is, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So two observations. For God to make Jesus both Lord and Christ means that he is both the ruler and the savior. The one who is the Lord is the king. The one who is the Lord is the king. And so in this way, you see the kingship of God the Father that we talked about now a number of weeks ago being applied and shared with his son. Jesus is the king. Secondly, you see that not only is he the king, but he is the victorious king. Quoting Psalm 10, Jesus' enemies will be his footstool. They will be conquered. They will be brought to the lowest place. The king will reign. And Jesus is that king. So, you're starting to see how this story of God in the world is fitting together. A story is more than a story of forgiveness, though forgiveness is certainly right in the middle of it. But this forgiveness is related 
to judgment and judgment is related to rebellion and rebellion is related to a king who has a throne and who rules and reigns over the earth. And so here's the logic. Here's the story in very simple parts that God is the loving creator and ruler of the world. He's the king. (laughs) That our biggest problem is our rebellion against the king as we want to have life and do life our own way. That rebellion against the king, who's perfect and holy and just, deserves death and judgment. But Jesus died for us, removing guilt, satisfying wrath and judgment for all those who believe. And when he rose from the dead, God made him both judge and ruler. Jesus is now the king. And he gives new life, the new ability for all of those who follow him and believe in him to live under the reign of the king. To experience the kingdom in a way that they had not before experienced it. God's chosen ruler, King Jesus, is the one that we follow. And we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. What does it mean to follow him more specifically? We'll get there. But pause with me and just think about the nature of this unique king and kingdom. Because most kingdoms do anything that they can to protect the king. That's the whole premise of the game of chess, right? King falls, the kingdom falls. Illustrations throughout history of protecting the king. One such illustration happened in World War II during the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was adamant that he wanted to join the expeditionary force and watch the invasion from the deck of a battleship in the English Channel. The United States General Dwight Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the Prime Minister would be killed. And when it became apparent that Churchill would not be convinced to stay behind, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority. He appealed to King George VI. And so the king went to the prime minister and told Churchill that if it was indeed the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was his duty as the king to do the same. And at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down because he knew that he could never put the king in that kind of danger. But King Jesus did exactly the opposite. (laughs) Rather than sitting back in the protection of his throne room, with royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered the king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all of the wrong things that we'd ever done and ever would do, completely atoning for all of those sins and changing the result of the past, the present, and the future. The crown of thorns that was placed on his head meant to mock his claims of kingly dignity actually became the greatest sign of his kingly dignity even in his death. And that kingly dignity was then confirmed 
in resurrection. (laughs) And it makes him worthy to follow. Jesus is the risen ruler and the righteous judge of the world. And that's what we do. We follow him. We follow him because we want forgiveness. We follow him because we want a new life. We follow him because we want unending joy that he promises. We follow him because we want to be saved from judgment. We follow him because we know that what we see and what we feel is not all that there is. We follow him because he is the king. For nearly 200 years, or nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingstone. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did. He was very successful. But under his name in an old edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingstone is listed simply as the brother of David Livingstone. My brother would be mad (laughs) if that happened. And you might be mad at your brother if that happened in your life. So who was David Livingstone? Well, while John was dedicated to making money, David knelt and he prayed and surrendered himself to Christ. He resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey reads, for 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize, to evangelize for the king. On his 59th birthday, David Livingstone wrote, my Jesus my king, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Jesus is the risen ruler and the righteous judge of the world and we follow him. Russell Moore wrote of a few years ago standing at the grave of Thomas Jefferson And he writes, I was prompted to give thanks for his life and his legacy. After all, if it weren't for Jefferson and his majestic declaration of independence, there might not even be a United States of America and certainly not a country quite like it is now. But standing at Jefferson's grave prompted me to realize that Jefferson is, well, in the grave. Jefferson's anti-supernaturalism is seen in visual form in his famous Bible in which he cut out all of the miraculous parts and most significantly cut out the parts that talked about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He writes, I love Jefferson for standing against King George, but not for standing against King Jesus. And yet 200 years later, belief in the resurrection of Jesus persists Just days after I was at this hero's grave, Christians from all over the world, despite science, despite progress, despite technology, confessed what the earliest believers confessed in the catacombs of Rome. Christ is risen indeed. 
Thomas Jefferson is still dead. I thank God for him. But standing at his grave reminds me how limited even his legacy can be in the grand scheme of trillions of years of cosmic time. It also reminds me of the contrast with the one whose monument isn't a house or even a simple grave marker. Instead, it's a borrowed tomb that isn't filled anymore. Because that empty tomb is in itself a declaration of independence. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared him and all who are in him free from death, free from the curse, and free from Satan's accusation. I suppose you would say that Jesus was endowed by his father with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, except that these blessings don't end in a graveyard. They go on forever. Because Jesus has risen. Jesus is the risen and righteous judge of the world. And the question that remains for all of us is will we come under the reign of this risen king? Please pray with me. Father, forgive us for space and distance causes an apathy towards such a miracle as the resurrection. But Lord, when we are faced with our own mortality and when we are faced with the mortality of ones that we love, the importance of the resurrection comes into focus. And so I pray today, God, that awe and wonder and marvel would fall upon us with the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and that the appropriate weight and lasting hope that is found in him will bring us to our own resurrection someday for you are loving and good and justice has been served and the sacrifice has been validated and Jesus now reigns supreme. Help us to follow him, to trust him, to know him, to love him, that we too will be raised and not raised unto eternal death, but raised to eternal life. Amen.